Our scripture lesson for this Ash Wednesday evening is taken from 1 John chapter 1, reading verses 5 through the second verse of the second chapter. And so I invite you to turn there in your Bibles and follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired word. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. In our study on the church, we have been speaking of late about the holiness or the set-asidedness of the people of God. We have learned that God is engaged in a plan to save a people unto himself who will be in relationship with him, an intimate relationship in which God takes up spiritual residence within his people. This was dramatically displayed at Pentecost when the Spirit of the Lord fell upon the assembled believers in Jerusalem prompting them to declare the marvelous works of God in languages unknown to them, but in dialects well known by the very diverse visitors gathered in the city. This indwelling Spirit of God continued to operate within these once intimidated disciples by giving them a boldness to proclaim Christ to any and all who would listen, shrugging off the tactical persecution they encountered at the hands of the religious authorities. This indwelling of the Holy Spirit is God's gift to everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. When we stop trusting in our own ability to reach moral perfection and begin trusting in the atoning work of Christ, who gives to us his righteousness, God sends his own spirit to live within us, claiming us as his own. And as we said a week ago, part of the Spirit's mission in us is to change the affections of our heart in order that the sinful nature, which continues to cling to our mortal flesh, 
is mortified or put to death so that we might live obediently before God. This is what the first apostles taught. And in letter after letter, you will find an appeal to the disciples scattered throughout the churches to surrender themselves to the leading of the Spirit in this sanctifying work. And we have cited many of those passages over the last few weeks. But in the early church, there arose some who began to teach doctrine that was no longer apostolic. That is, they diverged from the orthodox positions that were first taught. There were those who began to deny that Jesus was the incarnation of the Son of God, the long-expected Messiah. And they further denied that his death served as the atonement for our sins. As you can imagine, this did not sit well with the apostles and particularly with the apostle John. It was this heretical movement that served as the primary impetus for John's letters. He says in chapter 4 of this letter, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Throughout this letter, John challenges these heresies that are troubling the church, reminding his leaders of what they first believed and encouraging them to continue to hold to these truths. One of the claims that the heretics were making was that they were in fellowship with God. Now this is an appeal to authority that every heretic makes. They claim that what they are teaching is the truth because they learned it supernaturally from God. But John trumps the claims of these false teachers when he says in verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him, meaning Jesus. What the false teachers could not claim was a personal relationship with Jesus. They were not privy to three years of private conversations. They were not privy to three years of Jesus' teaching. They were not eyewitnesses to three years of his miracles or eyewitnesses to his death and resurrection and ascension. They were not there at Pentecost to receive the promised Holy Spirit. So the false teacher's claims to be in fellowship with God paled in comparison to the claims of authority that John and the other apostles were able to make. But John is also appealing to more than a personal relationship with Christ. He is saying that he and the other apostles have been endowed with a divine revelation by virtue of the fact that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Since the apostles have been claiming from the very beginning that Jesus is the Christ, the enfleshment of the second person of the Trinity, they have stood in the presence of the light of light, 
John says in his gospel, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John was one of the three apostles to stand in the presence of the glorified Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. He knows of what he speaks. So he challenges the self-attested claims of authority of these false teachers in verse 6 when he says, If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In other words, when claims of divine authority are coupled with a lifestyle that fails to demonstrate personal holiness, that should be an indication to one and all that something is amiss. However, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Here the apostle is pointing out that when we are in fellowship with God by walking in the light as he is in the light, that results in a right fellowship with other believers also. These false teachers had separated themselves from the fellowship of the churches that the apostles had planted and they were claiming that they alone were in fellowship with God. And John is saying, not so. If you were in right fellowship with God, then you would still be in fellowship with us. John reinforces this point in the next chapter when he says to his readers, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But John is also attacking other heretical affirmations that were being made by these false teachers. For they were making the claim that since they were enlightened by their fellowship with God, they have come to learn that they are no longer capable of sinning. In other words, they were saying that they had reached a point of moral perfection. Now, John knows that's not true. That's a devilish idea designed to discourage the saints so that whenever we stumble and fall, the accuser is immediately there causing us to doubt that we have been redeemed. The Apostle Paul paints the picture of our current state when he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So John is countering the false teacher's claims when he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There is no deception so effective as self-deception, particularly when it comes to our sin. 
We have an enormous capacity to turn a blind eye towards our sin. We have the ability to justify ourselves by placing blame on others for our moral failures. And the more we do that, the more that we deny our sin, the more distant we grow from fellowship with God until we reach the point that these false teachers had reached. And they were left with the only logical option available to simply declare that they were no longer sinning. Don't believe your lying eyes. We are perfect. The reality is that the closer we draw to God in right fellowship, the more cognizant we become of our sin. The light of Christ illuminates our fallenness and our moral failures and our sinful attitudes. And the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and pierces our hearts with that truth until we are in so much pain that we want relief. In Psalm 32, which we read a moment ago, David declares the blessedness of the one whose transgression is forgiven and in whom there is no deceit. But then he speaks about the converse of that when he speaks of the sorrow and grief he experienced when he refused to turn to God in repentance for his own sin. And he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. You see, God cares for His children so much that He will not leave them in their sin. God desires that His children know the beauty of right fellowship with Him. And so God chastens His children, not out of anger, but out of love for them, delivering them from their bondage to sin and providing them with relief that comes by means of His indwelling Spirit of sanctification. So what should we do when the Spirit heightens our awareness of our sin? King David said, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Well, John could not agree more. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is an assurance that is intended to hasten our coming to God when we sin. If you knew that every time you failed, the response would be one of forgiveness and cleansing and restoration, what would prevent you from coming? The reason that Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son is to communicate the heart of God towards sinners. It is to declare that when we turn from our pride and our love affair with sin and turn our face towards home, it is because we know that the Father is kind and generous, that He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But Jesus adds to that picture of the Father when He portrays the Father keeping his eyes peeled towards the horizon and he sees his son returning and he hikes up his robes and begins to run towards his son, eager to welcome him home. 
This is the picture that we need to have whenever we are hesitant to confess our sin to the Father. In the three parables that Jesus tells of lost things being found in that 15th chapter of Luke, he indicates that there is much rejoicing in heaven over sinners who were lost, but now are found. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Contrary to what the false teachers were saying, John acknowledges that until the day of Christ's return, we will struggle with sin. There's no escaping it. But John is not saying that we should throw up the white flag and surrender and just keep on sinning boldly. Not at all. We should constantly strive to overcome the temptations that arise every single day. What John wants his readers to know is that if and when we sin, that we have an advocate who sits on the throne in heaven with God the Father, and he is interceding on our behalf before God. And he is perfectly righteous. He willingly gave himself up on our behalf in order to satisfy God's just demands in regards to our sin. He is the one of whom God declared, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And that Son is advocating for us constantly. He does so because He loves us. He does so because He understands us. He knows what it is to be tempted. And while we have failed many times in our struggle with sin, He was victorious over sin and the grave, and He delights in sharing His victory with us. Today marks the beginning of the liturgical season of Lent. This is a 40-day period, not including Sundays, which reminds us of Jesus' time of testing in the wilderness prior to the start of his public ministry. And during those days, Jesus fasted and prayed, seeking the Father, committing himself without reservation to the mission that was set before him. And though the devil tempted him to abandon the will of God for him and to seek out a different path and an alternate way that would avoid the cross, Jesus refused those temptations and he stayed the course, knowing that there was no other way to save us from our sin. I would suggest to us that these 40 days would be an excellent time for each of us to engage in an intentional spiritual discipline of prayer and fasting and genuine repentance as we seek individually and corporately to draw ever closer to Christ as His disciples. Let us commit ourselves without reservation to the Great Commission as well as to the specific ministries that God is calling us to as a congregation. 
In just a moment, we will invite you to step forward and receive the imposition of ashes upon your forehead in the form of a crude cross. It is a reminder to us that we came from the dust of the earth and to the dust we will return. And if you choose to come, let this be the beginning of a spiritual renewal for you. And as we come to this time in the service, let me invite you to bow your heads with me and let us pray. Gracious God, out of your love and mercy, you breathed into the dust the breath of life, creating us to serve you and our neighbors. May these ashes remind us of our mortality and penitence and teach us again that only by your gracious gift are we given everlasting life through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.